Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Satnam Rana talks to Toya Wilcox about her early days as a Birmingham punk, about her influences and what continues to drive this award-winning musician, actress, composer and, more recently, internet sensation. everybody how are you thank you for being here as well thank you Toya oh I'm so looking forward to this evening um, I, I've enjoyed um, meeting you briefly um, behind the scenes but um, now to put it on tape as they say or on the record and in conversation um, Toya what can I say uh, just our brummy living legend is how I see you um, 13 top 40 singles 25 albums. Toya's written two books. I think it's about 30 albums now. I'm going to be corrected. (laughs) Um, Two books. Appeared in, I bet, over 40 stage plays by now as well. Acted in 20 feature films at least, including, of course, um, the epic Jubilee. Um, Presented hundreds and hundreds of TV programmes and released Posh Pop last August, which was your first solo album, of course, since 2008. So, as I said, truly a living legend. Um, You don't know this, but when I first started my career in 1999 at Radio 5 Live at Television Centre... I actually caught you in the corridor of the Five Live Studios, and I just remember this ball of energy and everyone saying, it's Toya Wilcox, Adam, it's Toya Wilcox. And I feel like that right now. Was that Portland Place? No, it was, it, was, it was Television Centre oh um, at, at White City. You know, I think I do remember it. I, I really I, do. Because I only ever did Radio Five Live once. Really? Yeah, so I remember it. Yeah, because it terrifies me, a Radio 5 Live. I mean, they're so brutal. It's like throwing yourself to wolves. Why would anyone want to do it? I just remember the buzz and the excitement. And, um, and I just remember you because you were so smiley and so warm and so friendly. Um, so it's a beautiful memory. And for me, it really is it, it's, it's a memory I hold dear to my heart because um, those early days were so important and influential in terms of starting out um, in, in the media. But what I want to know is, I've given you a bit of a, of a Wikipedia catalogue of Toya. Where do you get the energy from? Well... I have this saying, and I heard Lulu say this. She was doing a kind of lifetime interview on Radio 2. And the presenter said to her, Lulu, why do you keep going? And Lulu said something that really resonated with me. She says, I'm hoping I'll be discovered. (laughs) I love it. It's so extraordinary. And I don't know if it's like it for other artists, but everything I do, I feel is just... Two steps forward, three steps back. Now, that may sound negative because I actually think the best part of the creative process is being in the process, not finishing. But it gets tough and it can be tough. And I'm forever that youngest child in the family trying to prove myself. And I think that's where the energy comes from. I want to take you back then right to the beginning, if you don't mind. Um, So... I said to my colleagues, oh, yeah, Toya Wilcox, Birmingham. They're like, oh, we didn't realise Toya was from Birmingham. But you were born here, weren't you? I was conceived 
and born in the same bed. Now, in retrospect, <laughs> I find this really entertaining because I'm about to turn 64 and you never think of your parents having sex. But when you look back and you think, I was conceived and born in the same bed, which is kind of a very weird thing to say these days. So I was born 119 Grove Road, Kingsheath, Birmingham, 64 years ago. And my mother kept that bed right up until she passed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I remember having to throw it out when I was clearing her cottage. And I'm thinking, I'm throwing away the bed I was conceived in. Is this right? So, yes, yes. A lot of sex went on in Kingsheath. <laughs> I'm already thinking, will the BBC be able to broadcast this? But it is podcast, so I think we could get away with it. <laughs> Um, what, so what sort of child were you? Um, you know, were you, were you a shy child, a loud no. child? I, 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 when I think toy, I think flamboyant and out there. I was very, very happy. My mother didn't understand why she would catch me looking in a mirror just laughing. I, I was very happy in my own company. One thing I had absolutely no realisation about was I had a speech impediment uh, and I was born with twisted spine and I, I had what's called W legs. My legs pointed kind of inwards. So I, I had a very funny gait. So I not only laughed a lot, people actually laughed a lot at me. So I had to have a lot of um, elocution lessons. Uh, the children's hospital, the orthopaedic hospital, literally was 100 yards down Broad Street. I was in there every six months being monitored for surgery, correction surgery, taught how to walk. My mother was my physio. So that was my normality, and I was OK with it, and I never understood it was different until I realised I wanted to act and sing. And then I realised there was something different, but it was a blessing because the National Theatre embraced my lisp. They embraced the fact that I had found a way to move that made me stand out from everyone else. So I was very, very lucky to be in this kind of physical situation. And it's only today I can really say that and trust it and trust that what I went through actually helped me drive a wedge right through into the heart of the music industry. I suppose if you have a start like that, it makes you utterly resilient. Well, I just wasn't aware of it. And it, it wasn't until... I just thought I was the youngest, and my brother and sister used to treat me like a toy. I mean, my brother has broken so many of my bones. It's ridiculous. He used to just throw me up in the air and not catch me. <laughs> I remember he threw me up in the air once, and I broke my arm in two places, and my mother made me change my knickers before the ambulance came. <laughs> You ask me why I'm resilient, it's pretty obvious why I'm resilient. I just had to fend for myself. And that actually, I imagine, was a huge asset for you, breaking through the music industry at a time when, quite frankly, women didn't necessarily have an equal place in the music industry. But we'll, we'll come to that. So you, you've talked a little bit about, and I was going to ask you about the impact it had on your personality, but it sounds as if actually it, it helped build your personality. I think um, it did. And I also had the complexity. Now, we've only got 45 minutes, but the complexity of my mother. And I didn't know until the 3rd of December last year what her beginning of her life was like. And my mother was the most difficult, 
the most obstructive human being I've ever known. She just could not tell you a truth. She could not tell you anything complimentary. I mean, she couldn't say the words, I love you. And then December the 3rd last year, Ancestry.com got in touch with me. And they said, we need to see you in a room with a counsellor. And I thought, God, this is a bit heavy. And then they showed me the press cuttings that my mother, we think she was about 16, was locked in a room with her abusive father and he murdered her mother. And the father went to court and he was in prison for three months. Now, I think the psychology of my mother, because she never told any of us this, and me and my mum fought like cat and dog. We physically would roll out of the house in a physical fight. Um, and I, I mentioned to you earlier, I, I ended up being taken in by a Hindi family in Edgebaston to try and iron out this terrible relationship I had with my mother. I think my mother felt in court. I don't think she's probably even in court. She wasn't allowed to testify. She wasn't allowed to give her side of the story. And she came out of that feeling she could never tell her truth. And I never knew this about her. If I knew this, I'd have been really kind to her. And I would have been more inclusive with her. So that kind of upbringing for me just made me more and more individual and rebellious. I mean, she couldn't have got a worse daughter in her situation. So that's interesting because she obviously embarked upon having a family. You've, there's yourself, you've got two elder siblings. Yes. Yeah. She, the, it's almost contrary to what she would expect. She's the big story because she didn't learn to read or write. She only learned to ballet dance. And by the time she was 12, she was already a professional performer. By the time this incident happened with her parents, she had to have a chaperone with her 24 hours a day. And I reckon this is because the father was getting out in three months. So when my father met my mother, he saw her on stage at Western Supermare opening for the comedian Max Wall. And my father fell in love with her and followed her around the country. And he wasn't ever alone with her until the wedding night, because the chaperone wouldn't leave her. And he never understood that. So is there any correlation then between your mum entering the entertainment industry as potentially an escapism from yeah. the situation and you also entering the entertainment industry as I, an escapism from I the firmly situation? believe that when children form in the belly, they pick up memories. And I definitely picked up my mother's memories. The good memories, um, I think she loved being on stage. She was phenomenally beautiful. And she was educated to be on stage. That's all that she had. And I think instinctively I picked that up without any self-awareness. So what was so unusual about me is I came into this world, I auditioned at the Rep, I was dressing at the Alex, I was dressing at the Hippodrome. I did my first ever singing publicly at a pub called The Jug, which I believe was where this building is now. Oh, right. wow. um, <laughs> you know, I had no self-consciousness whatsoever. And I think that was my strength, that I had this incredible inner confidence. And did she put any pressure on you at any, or, or, or your father, no. um, indeed, any pressure on you at any point to conform I know you said you're a rebel, but conform and do the whole marriage thing and the children thing like she had done. No, no. I mean, the, 
the advice they gave me is don't get pregnant and don't go to jail. I mean, that was... <laughs> that was the extent of the advice. And when I introduced my husband-to-be, Robert Fripp, to them, they both burst out laughing. And they ran in the kitchen. This was at Grove Road, Kings Heath. And I went in and I said, is there a problem? And they said, is he mad? (laughs) So, you know, he... They never, ever really believed in me. And it wasn't until I did the National Theatre when I was 18, I was spotted with my green and yellow hair walking down New Street by two directors who wanted me to go and audition for a a play at Pebble Mill. That led me to go to the National Theatre. My parents came and saw me at the National Theatre, but they didn't really take me seriously till I got Top of the Pops which was four years later. So it was a long journey of winning them over to my side. So how does family life contrast now then with the way you were brought up and what sounds like a very self-assured and almost inner strength upbringing on your part? Very individualistic. How does it compare now? Well, I don't have family now, so... When I say that, my sister lives near Brighton. She's a remarkable woman, absolutely remarkable. Um, She studied at Dudley Road to be a nurse. She went into very advanced accounting. She was Alan Miliband's right-hand woman um, during that period in politics and helped build this massive hospital on the Euston Road in London. And then her last job in the NHS before she sailed around the world... Um, She was part of the NHS response team to terrorism at the Olympics. And what toughened her up, she was present at the pub bombings. She was on site at the Birmingham pub bombings. Um, And that really toughened her up. And and she's had a remarkable career. Now, my brother um, was one of only four Harrier fighter pilots in 1972 to 74 because they cost 12 million each to train. So he was remarkable as well. And I do remember my parents saying once they had no idea where the three of us came from. (laughs) They had no faith in any of us. It was the magic bed. The magic (laughs) bed. bed. That's what it was. It was the water of King's Heath that did it. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your school then. Um... Called Moreau, Edgebaston. It was an all-girls school. It was a very good school in that it was um, multicultural. It was very, very brilliant like that. And I loved it for that. And I loved the mix of cultures. This is how I ended up living with a Hindi family. Um, But also they took in disabled children. My classmates, one was blind. uh, One had the same kind of gait as me. So there there were other pupils who were going off to hospital meetings. I was there from kindergarten from the age of four and a half till I left at the age of, I think, 17. But around the 11 plus, I just went AWOL. I went from being a very brilliant artist, mathematician, to just not fitting in the system. It got too quick for me. I couldn't pick it up. So I was very disruptive. I was absolutely appalling. And I was appalling to the point that the headmistress once came to me to ask me to control the other girls. I was like the school mafia. She, she, said, look, she said, look, Toya, um, they all look up to you. They all think you're fantastic. We're having a bit of trouble with so-and-so. Could you go and have a word with her? So tell me about your Hindu family, because we did speak about this a little bit, um, and I was curious. 
Selwyn Road, Edgbaston. Very posh. Um, they took you in, but yeah. also at the same time, they warned yeah. you, didn't they? I had a massive fight with my mother. It was massive and we couldn't be kept in the same house. And Mrs Gerard um, phoned my father up. She was a doctor and she said, look, I will take Toya in and we'll keep her until this all calms down. And as I arrived, um, Mrs Gerard opened the door and said, you will not influence my daughters. <laughs> her daughters looked like supermodels. They didn't need me. I mean, they were getting all the attention of the boys of Birmingham. They were absolutely gorgeous. And I stayed there for a couple of months until it all blew over, until my mother and I could be put in the same room together and we could talk again. It's amazing, actually, just to um, know that camaraderie and that the essence of our city, our multicultural city, the togetherness actually existed back in the, I'm guessing this is the 70s, isn't it? Well, I was born in 58. This would have been about 1972. Yeah. That, that for me, actually, is a, is a really nice prism into the past of what Birmingham is like. And it's just grown and flourished. Birmingham is gorgeous. I mean, I would go to Snobs Club, which was just over there. Oh, I went there as well. I loved it. <laughs> Friday and Saturday. It was amazing. And the embassy that served warm wine. And <laughs> I would go to the Locarno. I saw Hawkwind when I was 11. I think I saw Black Sabbath when I was about 12. It just a fabulous city for culture and music and friendship. Beautiful. And security guards who never checked ages as well. <laughs> so you, you've talked a bit about school, but what were you passionate about? The one thing that my mother and I used to get on really well. And there was a point where that relationship changed. And she took me to the Gaumont off Corporation Street to see The Sound of Music. And we went seven times in a row. And I turned to my mother and I said, that's what I'm going to do. And it threatened her. It upset her. It wasn't jealousy. It just connected her to something she was trying to forget. And from that point onwards, I saw the barrier go up and my determination just got stronger. And I just think I just started to do anything I possibly could to get closer into show business. Now, we had a family friend at the time, and this was a really big stroke of luck. He was the artistic director, the managing director of Pebble Mill. And he said to my parents, your daughter is very, very special. Get her into drama school. So he nominated me into the Old Rep Theatre School on Station Road. And that was really the beginning of my life, because this was around the time of the Birmingham pub bombings. Every Friday, I would pay for my dance lesson. And then every Saturday, I would go into drama school because I was only 14. And then I would get a job either selling cigarettes at, at John Lewis's or working in the China department. As you can guess, I lied about my age the whole a time. <laughs> a lot. And no one checked your age. So I could pay for the drama school. But this then led me to being a dresser. I dressed the whole of the Dad's Army touring company, which was the same as the TV cast. I dressed Judy Geeson, I dressed Simon Williams, I dressed Sylvia Sims. I was in the Ballet Rambert as a walk-on artist. 
all before I was a legal age. Um, and I just loved it. And they loved me. And Judy Geeson called me her bird of paradise. How beautiful. So I was accepted, really accepted. So how did that then evolve into... Obviously, when, when music came, it was punk. The Sex Pistols played Birmingham only ever twice, and I believe it was 1976. The first time was August at Barbarella's, and the second time was October at Bogart's, just past the town hall. I was at that gig. So at that time, I was about 16, possibly turning 17, and I'd already been making my own clothes since I was 12. But my mother took me at the age of 14 to Rackham's hair department and a man called Derek Goddard cut my hair. And he said, you should be a hair model. I'm going to dye it blue. Oh, is that how it started? That's how it started. This is, you know, pre-punk. He dyed my hair blue and I went home in a headscarf. And I wore this headscarf at home and at school for two weeks. And eventually my mother had the guts to pull the headscarf off. And she screamed, she cried, she howled. And that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> I became a model for Wella through Rackham's. Oh, I travelled wow. the whole of the UK as a hair model. I walked the catwalks of Blackpool. <laughs> The catwalks of Blackburn, of London, in my pre-punk gear. I just became the girl who would do anything with her hair. And I got spotted. I got spotted by the B-Cat brothers who wanted to know about me. And they tracked me down to drama school and said, we have to audition this girl. And I never looked back. Now, that was a stroke of luck. The next stroke of luck... The play was on BBC Two, Second City First. My play was called Glitter. I had to write two songs and record them with a band called Bilbo Baggins that were like the little brothers to the Bay City Rollers. And the play was based around a girl who broke into the top of the pop studio. I mean, talk about art imitating life. <laughs> when this played on BBC Two, October of that year, the world-famous German film star Maximilian Schell was watching with Kate Nelligan, and Kate Nelligan turned to him and said, there's our Emma in Tales from the Vienna Woods, which was opening at the National Theatre in February the following year. So I moved to London and lived with Kate Nelligan for nine months. I, I turned up on the first day of rehearsal with a bag of salmon sandwiches... <laughs> that my mother made me, my parents dropped me at New Street Station, got the train into Euston, got to the National Theatre, sat next to Brenda Bletham with my salmon sandwiches. And Brenda turned to me and she said, where are you going to live? And I said, oh, I'll commute from Birmingham. And she said, you won't be able to do it. You won't be able to keep it up. Come and live on my sofa. I thought, I don't want to live on your sofa. I mean, God, if only I knew what was going to happen to her 10 years later. <laughs> And Kate Nelligan says, I, I have a granny flat. Come and live with me. And I lived in her granny flat. It was so kind. Yeah. Do you feel that that same camaraderie is still there in it's the industry? It's definitely there. It's is definitely there. Because we don't get to see that play, do we? It's so rarely you come across someone who's difficult to deal with. Very, very rare. I can count them on one hand after 42 years in the business. So who influenced you the most? Well... I love the era when men started wearing makeup. 
Mark Boland, David Bowie, Alice Cooper. And then, you know, I, I was a, a star in the 80s, so I had Duran Duran. <laughs> you know, it's just great. I love men wearing makeup. The big life-changing moment for me was definitely Ziggy Stardust and seeing David Bowie at the New Theatre in Coventry, 1972. I mean, I just knew I could do nothing but music at that point. It was a freedom of his... His whole body was involved in the music. He wasn't just a musician. I mean, obviously, the costumes and the makeup were absolutely breathtaking. The songs were exhilarating. But it was his complete loss into that character that I found utterly unforgettable, life-changing. And does that still influence you now? Yeah, absolutely. When you see artists who just disappear into the event, I have such admiration for that. It's not a construct, it's not fake. They're actually plugging into something that is supernatural and I love it. And so I think when I look back at your catalogue and I sense that. Oh yeah, well, I mean, part of that was just me trying to escape everything, I, you know, escape the kind of, uh, the toughness of being brought up in a middle-class family, a wealthy middle-class family. But that whole physicality was a challenge for me. I used to have to hide the raises in my boots. So for the first couple of years, I used to wear thigh boots with hidden raises in to equal out my walk. So everything for me was about twisting the truth and not letting the truth be seen on a certain level. But even now, when I get on stage, I get taken over by the event. I always say this to my audience, no audience is ever predictable or ever the same. Every musical performance is utterly unique. And you can see it when an artist goes on stage and it's not unique for them. And they tend to be the huge A-listers, believe it or not. And it might be because of the sheer size of the venues they play. But for me, I, I get completely taken over and lost in the event. And it's a great feeling. It's very rewarding. I guess it's being on another... Were you influenced by your father and his Buddhism? Yes. And being on that different, almost spiritual stroke musical plane when you are in that moment of being on stage? I was definitely influenced by my father always seeing something in the room no one else could see. And he didn't mind talking about it. So he was always referring to his grandparents. He was always referring to them being around, being in the room, something, you know, tipping on a table. or it, He just picked it up. And there is that otherness. But what I love about the fact when I sing... And I have to stop people talking to me just as I go on stage because I have no idea what the first line is. No idea. And if someone comes up to me as I'm about to go on, and this happened um, at Henley at a huge festival, and someone came up to me as I was being announced and they went, hi, Toya, how are you? How's it going? And I started just going on stage and I picked the mic up and I was supposed to start with Thunder in the Mountains and I started with I'm well today. And it's, it is completely subliminal where you find those words. And I play a very cruel game with myself. And I'm in the middle of the song and I'm thinking, I'm about to start the next verse and I haven't got a clue what that line is. And it just comes like that. So I think that is part of why I really trust the process. And I go somewhere I'm not connected to in the everyday 
that's about the now. What about the first gig? What was that like? That must have been terrifying. No, it was really bad. It was a synagogue in Golders Green. Yeah. I remember Will Self, the writer, was in the audience. So at this point, he wasn't very famous. And there was also, I can't remember his name now, but he's the main foreign correspondent for ITV News, was in the audience. It was their very first gig. And I was in this punk band, and my drummer and my... Co-writer, my first co-writer, Joel Bogan, very honourable, traditional Jewish people. They, we never worked on a Friday. Uh, they were with the family every Friday. And they got us a gig in the synagogue. And I drank a bottle of vodka. <laughs> and th- this progressed right through the show. And by the fourth number, I was unconscious on the stage. <laughs> And everyone thought it was part of the show. And it, it was nerves. I apparently pulled it off because Will Self says it's one of his favourite gigs. <laughs> I love that. But this was the height of punk. Yeah, so everyone, so, you know, expected bad behaviour. And anything goes, I suppose, in the, in, in the height of punk as well. So how different is Toya the performer to Toya the person? I think Toya the performer is far more interesting. I really think that person is who I want to be. I hate talking about myself as some kind of third entity, but when I'm not performing, I'm a businesswoman. I I don't have management. I manage everything. And unfortunately, I do a lot of managing of my husband as well. Uh, So when I'm off stage, I have an office at home. I, uh, you know, I have to check everything. I have to check the contracts, the accounts. I mean, everything It's really backbreakingly dull and then the moment I get in the car and I go to a gig it's like normality I don't have to do the accounts anymore so it's very very different I am a businesswoman. I hear you I think anyone in this game knows that uh, one minute you can be putting your knickers in the washing machine (laughs) and the next minute your lipstick's on and you're on the tv and honestly I do not know how any woman or father has a family, runs a family and has a job. I really don't know how you do it. I don't know how because it did. I mean I'm working from six in the morning until about midnight and that's my normal day. And some people have to fit children in. I don't know how they do it. When I told my auntie um, about Toya tonight, she was well impressed. I was like the favourite niece in the family at the weekend. <laughs> nice. um, but actually you were kind of one of the original feminists for me. You liberated a lot of young women. I think that's very generous because, for me, it was the women of the late 60s into the early 70s who really were pushing up the glass ceiling and breaking rules and rewriting the rule book. I think what happened with me is that punk came along and there was something about punk that accepted all types of human beings, all types of men, all types of women... And it accepted a kind of political correctness that we have today, that gay people were safe in our company, people of all cultures were safe in our company. And it allowed me to be me to a a certain point where I didn't have to hide my natural self. And when I left Birmingham uh, at the age of 18, I was making my own clothes, I was quite a lot heavier than I am now. And punk didn't ever see that. 
They saw me as a person, as an individual, someone with ideas, someone who wanted to perform, to be part of the music. I wasn't judged for my physicality. And then when I got signed to a label, that kind of changed because, you know, Top of the Pops was in the sights and they wanted to sell more product. I was advised to lose weight. Not a problem because when I did quadrophenia, I was on speed 24 hours a day. <laughs> we see, when I did quadrophenia, um, it was quite a journey to get there because Frank Rodham, the director, asked me to get Johnny Rotten through a screen test to play the lead in Quadrophenia. And he was absolutely phenomenal on camera, but they couldn't get the finance for the film if Johnny was in it. But that man has a future as an actor. He is so good. And then I didn't hear back from Frank Rodham, and I was working with Catherine Hepburn in the same studio making The Corn is Green, and I just pestered Rodham. I, I was banging on the window of his office saying, give me a job, give me a job. And... When I got the job of Monkey and Quadrophenia, through sheer persistence and not he was unable to find the actress that he, he could see in his mind's eye, I was also making Quatermass with Sir John Mills. So I was doing night shoots and day shoots. So I started to take diet pills. I lost three stone. Yeah. I, I remember once I went into the day shoot. I was, I was in the makeup room with Sting sitting next to me because Sting was in Quadrophenia. And I was coughing really badly and the makeup artist put the brushes down and she said to um, the management on site, she said, I'm getting her to a hospital now. And she took me to where this enormous hotel is. I, I think it's the Langham at High Park Corner. That used to be a hospital. She took me in. I had pneumonia taken back to the set in Southgate with penicillin and just carried on my routine, filming in the daytime and filming right through the night with Sir John Mills. But I loved every minute of it. It was exhilarating. I can, I, I can still feel the exhilaration that you felt back then, right now, oh. with you just describing it. You still have that va-va-voom about you. A lot of people might get to a certain point in the industry and sort of think, OK, time to pause and cash in on the back catalogue. You have evolved and the music industry um, has evo evolved in so many ways as well. So how has that evolution into digital helped or hindered? There definitely has been um, a phase in my life where I wasn't doing what I felt I should be doing. So throughout the 90s, I was a TV presenter, and I'm not dissing that because I was actually earning a living at that point. It was very lucrative, but my heart was in music, and I was going home every night just feeling hollow, as if I hadn't achieved anything, because I knew that I'm a performer. I act and I sing, and that's, that's it. And then I was in a play in 2002 at Soho Theatre, tiny, tiny little theatre, and the management brought me a fax, and the fax said, Toya, how do you feel about playing Wembley Arena? And I thought it was a joke. And I contacted um, the agent, and they said, no, we, we are going to sell out 16,000 seats at Wembley Arena. It'll be you, Tony Hadley, Belinda Carlisle, Kim Wilde, and we did it. And I've not looked back since 2002. I've got my foothold back in music. But then the biggest and most important thing that happened to me, because after about 1984, 
before I had no access to my musical catalogue. I could perform it live, but I had no access to promote it as physical record sales. And I tried to buy the catalogue three years ago and the record company Safari would not sell it me. And I put in the highest bid. So this just shows the sexism even today. But a very good company did buy it. Cherry Red Records bought it and now are re-releasing all my catalogues. So in the last 10 months, I've been in the album charts three or four times in the top 30. I think I believe even in the top 10. And then I managed to sign my two new albums in the Court of the Crimson Queen and Posh Pop to Dima Music, which is part of BBC. And Posh Pop went number one in 32 Amazing. charts last August. So it's, it's perseverance. Thank you. And I have to add, I got the news two days ago that I've got a Best Actress nomination. <gasps> For the Richard Harris Film Festival for the movie Give Them Wings, which we only completed two weeks before lockdown began. And it's been waiting to come out. And that's gleaned me two Best Actress nominations. And I also did another movie in lockdown called The Ghost of Borley Rectory that got me a nomination for Best Supporting Actress up against Julian Sands. So I've been really, really busy. And I think, like all of us, if COVID hadn't come about and lockdown hadn't come about, I would perhaps be in a different place today even. But I don't regret it because YouTube has really changed my life. And of course, of course. It, and I tell you what, you have really changed our Sunday lunches as well. I mean, how? And, like, tell me. Well, I... And, and how do you manage to keep the tape on? <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, I want to put this in perspective. The Kardashians probably pay about 100k a week for the publicity and that publicity machine they keep running. It is a multi-million pound industry to keep them up there. Now, I can't afford even £10 a week for publicity. So I realised after posting the very first film exactly a year ago, April last year, it was me teaching my husband to jive. We posted this 29-second film clip and within five minutes it had 100,000 replies around the world. And we realised the power of YouTube and the power of us as a couple. So we persevered. He hated it. I mean, he hated me for Swan Lake where he's in a choo-choo <laughs> and dancing by the River Avon. He, I mean, it got headlines in Italy. What's happened to Robert Fripp? <laughs> um, but eventually we persevered and in January 2021, we hit 10 million views on Enter Sandman mm. by Metallica because I went braless and wore a see-through T-shirt. And you say I'm a feminist? Um, I honestly think that what happened was we realised the power of the female form, the power of our mutual love, and the power of this wonderful man who's in his mid-70s who can play guitar so brilliantly. 
So we are now exploring how do we do this and really address feminism? And it's an interesting one because I believe Madonna is a phenomenal feminist. And in the early 90s, she did a book called Sex, which for me was a step too far. She gave too much away. So my thinking is, I'm 64 in two weeks. I want to tell the world that life is should be fabulous forever and ever and ever. You don't stop believing in yourself. So there's that going on. There's also the right to be very physical and extreme without feeling threat. And I only ever do this in the company of my husband. So I'm not on fans only. I refuse to do all that. <laughs> on Celeb VM, which I do do, I get the odd request for the see-through T-shirt. And I write, write back and I say, you're so kind, you're so sweet. But only my husband sees that and 64 million other people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And do you know what? My favourite one is jogging in the kitchen. I know that's quite recent, but jogging in the kitchen just made me think, oh, Toya, I just don't look as good as you when I try and do it at home. But I, I did that. That's what I do to make my husband <laughs> laugh. I do that. And so we decided to put it on film. This morning, I can tell you this, we filmed The Cranberry Zombie. And I have a problem with brilliant songs. They make me cry. And this song is one of the best songs in the history of music, and it's written by a woman, but it's also a very powerful song. And I didn't want to expose my body during it. And I thought, how are we going to do this? Because we will go from 200,000 hits in an hour to 5,000. It will drop because my best friends on my chest are very, very popular. <laughs> so... I do a lot of artwork, and in my art room, I have a lot of silver leaf. So I covered my body in silver leaf. And I look fantastic! And it's still respectful to the song. That's this Sunday. This Sunday. So um, we've all got a treat in for us for Sunday lunch, ladies and gentlemen. So how has this whole punk pop lifestyle, acting, presenting, writing, benefited you? I do get pissed off that I'm not playing arenas every single night. My ego and my vanity, yeah, it's there. It's really there. But I've had a 42-year career where I've been in front of audiences so close that I can feel their emotional experience. And when people say to me, why are you playing small venues? Well, firstly, that's the venues I fill. But I would never, ever leave that behind because... When I look into someone's eyes, and if they're on a wheelchair, if they've got crutches behind their seat, if they're crying during It's a Mystery, I want to be there to witness this. I don't want to be so far away I never see that moment. So how have I benefited from it? I think it's made me a far better human being that I work at the level I work at. I love that. For you, Birmingham, how do you feel that people perceive your city, the city that you were born in, that gave you that formative education and training which propelled you into the big wide world of London and showbiz? So how does the world perceive it? How yeah. does the rest of the UK? I think it deserves better because we have a phenomenal musical heritage. But I do think people genuinely know this is a location city, a vacation location destination city. 
and what people don't know and what they really should know, this is Steven Spielberg's chosen city to come and do test shoots in. And if people knew that, I think they'd view the city differently. I was shooting Battleship Earth and we were shooting on a back street in Digbeth on a green screen and we couldn't use the lane outside because Spielberg was there doing a test shoot. And this was about eight years ago and nobody knew he was there. And we were just beside ourselves because we felt part of it. Now, if Spielberg feels that way about this city, then the whole world should know about it. I remember that because I chased him around Birmingham for about four days. And I did, oh. we did get sight of him. We got him on Midlands today, eventually. And, <laughs> another one, very, very quickly. When I first met my husband, I took him to a pub in a place called Wirepiddle, just outside of Pershaw. And he was looking at the bar menu, a chalkboard. And this man came up to him and said, Ooh, I've had that. And that was really tasty. Oh, if you haven't had that, try that. And the man went through the whole menu. <laughs> And my husband came back to me and he said, I've got a new best friend. And I said, yep, that's Birmingham people for you. Absolutely. You can take people out of Birmingham, West Midlands. I mean, I'm Wolfroonian originally, but you can never take the Wolfroonian, Brummie, West Midlands out of them. We're really warm-hearted and this is a city that really embraces absolutely everything from musical genres to, to different people. I've got one final question that I'm dying to ask you. And I suppose I'm asking you because I'm a woman, um, I'm a mum and I'm nowhere near as successful as you, but nevertheless have a, a taste of the industry, so to speak. You, you don't have children, but I, what I find quite intriguing is that both you and your husband want to leave your, your fortune to um, some form of music academy for young people, I yeah, believe. Yeah, Why very, is that? It's very generous of you to say we're going to leave our fortune because he, he, he spends money... But you money live in Pershaw like, now. <laughs> I, I mean, where we live, we've just bought the bank next door, which is becoming an archive building of both our careers. Um, I mean, that, that's like the white elephant in our life at the moment. I mean, it's getting through everything. But we've decided that we will leave everything, our archive, his archive, and the remaining monies, and I think it's going to be okay because they're going to be worth more dead than alive, um, we're going to leave it to an educational um, fund, a trust, so that you know, kids can have funding to go to drama school and music school. Thank you. And that is something really close to my heart because you're talking to the girl whose parents could not afford to send her to Central Drama School over the square there at the Rep when I was a teenager. Kind of muddled through and found my own way. But to know that there are children in the future who will have unlocked opportunities is just absolutely amazing. And actually, at the beginning of our chat, I said you were a living legend. You're not a living legend. You are just a legend. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>